Hi folks, um, how are you? I hope you're well. Um, I hope you've had a good week. Um, thank you for joining me for another episode of Soundtrack and it's great to have you with us. Um, I put up a little thing on social media um, today because I listened to the latest episode of Annie Mack's wonderful podcast, Changes, where she um, kind of changed things up because she had been contacted by a Ukrainian musician and wanted to give him the platform to tell a story. And I wondered if we could do the same thing on soundtracking. Um, so I have reached out to see if there are any uh, Ukrainian creatives in the world of film and music, directors, composers, who want to get in touch with the show. So if you just head on to our social media, Twitter, Instagram, whatever, and DM us, um, we'd love to hear from you. And it'd be lovely to be able to tell your stories in future episodes of the show and do whatever we can to help your stories get out there. So if you know of anyone, if you are Ukrainian composer or director, then please do get in touch um, because we'd love to hear from you. We are fast approaching episode 300 of this podcast, which is just bonkers, to be honest. Um, So thank you for the support, because without you showing your enthusiasm for the show, we wouldn't be able to keep it going. So we really are very grateful for your ears and your attention. And uh, we've got a friend of the show returning to soundtracking this week in the shape of Craig Roberts, who has directed a British indie film that I absolutely love. If you follow me on social media, you'll have already seen me wanging on about it, but for good reason. Phantom of the Open was written by Simon Farnaby. And it's quite interesting because he wrote a book about um, the character of the film. And then, yeah, and then they've made the film, which is great. Uh, And it tells the unlikely true story of Morris Flitcroft, an excellent hoaxer and terrible golfer, who recorded the worst ever score recorded at the British Open Championships when he contrived to take part in qualifying for the event in 1976. Mark Rylance and Sally Hawkins head a very strong and brilliant cast, whilst the film is scored by another friend of the show, the fabulous Isabel Waller-Bridge. And it's with one of Isabel's gorgeous cues that we begin First Shot. Hi, hi, hi. I'm good. How, How are, are you? you? I'm well, thank you. Not too bad. How are you finding the world of remote junketing? <laughs> well, this is my first time doing it, I think, probably. <laughs> um, and I mean, it's quite a professional setup here, to be honest. It's pretty, pretty cool. It's good to see you the other day. Thanks for doing uh, that again. Oh, it was my absolute pleasure. It was so nice to, I mean, it was so nice to chat to you. So, so nice to get uh, just that response. I don't know if you felt it, but it felt like such a warm response in that room from the audience just real kind of um love for the film yeah it was not yeah well i, I didn't wa- didn't watch the film so but the yeah the q a seemed really nice it's really hard to tell what it's going to be like going into it after not watching it but everyone seemed yeah yeah in good are, those th- are, they, are they scary things for you like doing q a's after the film yeah definitely definitely <laughs> only because i don't think you're going to add it i feel like it's hard to add anything i mean like i feel like it's David Lynch does it right. He, you know, doesn't really talk much about any of it. He kind of lets ah. it speak speak for itself. He also he's got a great phrase, Lynch, which is as soon as you give the answer away, 
it no longer becomes interesting. And I think that's a good way to, not that this is an abstract movie in any kind of way, the answers are pretty much all, you know, all in front of you. Mm -hmm. That's how I kind of feel about it sometimes. Well, I hope you're not going to feel that way right now. I tell you what was a bonus the other night as well, which I, you, you didn't think was going to happen as well, was Mark Rylance coming up and taking part in that q and I mean, I've never in, had the pleasure of interviewing him before, and I was totally like fireworks going off inside me, just in terms of being able to talk to him about, you know, his kind of his craft and his approach and, Mad alive, he's an extraordinary person. He really is. Yeah, I was surprised he was, you know, he doesn't really do a lot of, of press full stop, really, but he's been really supportive of this and he's done, you know, he's done quite a bit. But yeah, he did, you know, he, he came up for the intro as well at the beginning, which I was yeah. surprised he came up for and then stuck around and did the QA. And the QA actually, it felt longer than it was supposed to be. It felt like it was, you know, we could have gone. Oh, I dragged it out. I went on. <laughs> there was someone at the back <laughs> literally lassoing me like that, and I just ignored them for a good well, I loved that. I loved that. I felt like he would have called for hours, to be honest. He, I, felt, I think he felt really safe, and that's half the battle. But I also think that it's about his experience on this film, both working with you and also what playing this character gave him the opportunity to to do like it was really interesting hearing him talk about the fact that he felt like he could tap into bits of himself for for Morris yeah. you know which I thought was you know the, the way that I kind of connected with that character and that you know I've seen the film three times now but he is so beautiful beautifully performed and it feels so real so that kind of makes sense really when you hear him say that yeah exactly exactly he's I mean we've to, we totally lucked out with that you know getting him when we when we sat down to to discuss who would play Morris, I think it was just Mark. It, the script was very funny. It was a comedy, out and out comedy, with heart in there, of course. But we felt that if we'd shot it like a drama and we treated it like a drama a little bit more, um, then perhaps when it gets to the end of the movie, you you, you know you allow the audience to, yeah. to cry or feel emotional and, and connect with the family and the love of it all. And that's, I mean, that's all down to him, really. It's he grounds it completely. I mean, he's the best. Let's talk about your new film then, Phantom of the Open. Oh, I'm so excited it's out because we talked about it way when you were last on the podcast, you were just about to start filming. So it's lovely oh. to kind of, yeah. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah, November yeah, yeah. 20, well, the podcast went out in November. So it was at some point kind of, you were like, I'm just literally off tomorrow to start filming. I was like, oh my God. Yeah, yeah. Actually, when we were about to start filming, I caught COVID. So I caught COVID the first week of filming, <laughs> which was not ideal at all. Um, so the first the first day of filming was in, I was in bed directing from my bedroom, which was so oh, bless you. Yeah, it, it was very oh, strange. Um, but that didn't work out very well, so that mm. got cancelled pretty quickly. And then, like we luck, luckily we we had to make it look like it was a really hot summer. And the first day they they turned up to film, and I wasn't there. It was raining, and the weather wasn't great. So we decided not to do that because the remote directing was just it was yeah. it was awful. So we pushed a week, and then that week that we started filming. It was super sunny. So it kind Yay. Of worked out. Yes. Tell me a little bit about this, um, the, the journey then, because Simon Farnaby's script, does someone send it to you, you read it, or you put yourself forward to direct it? How does that work? How did you end up directing the film? Because you, you mentioned there that the script was kind of, kind of all like comedy. And, you know, that's the brilliant thing about you've, you've got such a strong creative sense with your filmmaking, I think, that you can see and feel your real kind of, your stamp on this film in terms of it's hard to put it into one box, which is such a brilliant thing. You know, oh, you've added lots of different little things to it. So tell me a little bit about, before we go into music, just about how you came to direct this. 
Well, thank you very much. That's super kind. I, well, I wasn't looking to direct other people's work, to be honest. I was just going to, you know, write my own stuff and then direct that and then act in the, in, in the time that it took to get those projects going. But the producers and Simon came to London Film Festival and saw Eternal Beauty. And I think they just connected with the fact that Eternal Beauty is about a woman living with paranoid schizophrenia. And the movie was built in a way that we're laughing with her and not laughing at, at her because um, it's a comedy in places. And I think that probably that connected with the Phantom of the Open a little bit. Morris was this kind of eccentric character that um, we wanted to be on the ride with him and not be laughing at him because the RNA or the, you know, the, the, the golf people were laughing at him. So, yeah, I got the script and, I mean, I loved it, to be honest. Like, it's, I don't think I'll ever be able to write anything as commercial. It's so accessible and I, I loved that. And my films before that was, you know, maybe abstract. And I suppose there was, no, there was not a lot of story in the films I'd done beforehand. They always feel like like first-person computer games to me, like people roaming around, yeah, I suppose, seeing day-to-day, you know, the life of people. So there was so much story in this script, and that was scary as well at the first time, you know, when I, when I first read it. But mm. I was, I loved the challenge of, okay, taking all this story and then maybe, okay, how would we shoot it? We'd, I kept thinking of, like, Boogie Nights and, like, Magnolia and, you know, as you know, I'm a massive Paul Thomas Anderson fan, and I was like... Did okay. I mention that he was on the podcast? <laughs> yes, you did. That's so cool. Um, uh, and, and I was like, okay, so I could, you know, maybe shoot it in a way that's kinetic, and it, the camera keeps moving throughout the story, and that would perhaps help it. So I just pitched to them. I, you know, I, I mentioned, like, Boogie Nights and Catch Me If You Can, and uh, I talked about The Big Lebowski and uh, The Coens, and mm. I, my references weren't really British films even though it's a british story i kind of wanted it to transcend that and make it feel as i suppose as universal as possible and yeah they couldn't find anybody else so i got the job Stop it. that was Stop it, it. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think it was about the the character or the story though that you you kind of connected with that you that you thought that it was something you could you know kind of bring to the screen I love outsiders. I completely love outsiders. I think in three films I've made, even though I didn't write this, they're all they're all about outsiders. Some of my favorite movies, you know, I've, I've I mean, I've been banging on about Punch Drunk Love to you certainly as well in the past so much, and that's about an outsider, like Taxi Driver, outsider. I love I love outsider mm. pictures, and also the underdog story. We love an underdog story. One of my favorite movies is is um is a music movie actually is Eight Mile, and I love that. I love oh, that movie. Great. It's a great. I forgot movie. about your Eminem love. Yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, I'm not sure. I, I'm, I, I'm, I'm allowed to love him anymore. Yeah, I, I, well, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but Eight Mile, Eight Mile's absolutely amazing, um, and it's just made very, very well. So, and I also loved how it was shot, Eight Mile. I think because there's a there's a version of that movie that's really bright and colourful, but it's you know, it, I'm not sure if it's on 16, but it looks like it's on 16 mil, and it's very gritty and. I, I, not that I, you know, I wasn't shouting Eight Mile in, in the prep for this movie, but I had it in the back of my mind, I think. Um, Mark Rylance does Eight Mile. I love that idea. <laughs> try to get him to rap. Would not do it. Um, uh, so, yeah, the underdog story. Also, my dad played golf. He was a golfer. And it felt like, you know, this would be a movie that he'd definitely watch. So that was, a, you know, that was a, that was a good motivation to, to do it. How much music was in, because um, there's, there's a great, Music is kind of um, is all over this film. You know, you've got brilliant needle drops that are that serve quite lots of different purposes, actually. Then you have this absolutely beautiful score by Isabel Waller-Bridge, who was going to join us today, but she's not feeling well. So we wish her a a speedy recovery and wish you well, Isabel. But oh, my God, what a perfect score for this film. It's got such a it's got such a presence and such a, a physical place in this film, really. It's just amazing. At what point, you know, how much music was in the scope was in the script? 
And then where do you start thinking about music for this film? There was a few tracks in the script. There was one or two tracks that Simon had in the script. And then when I did my pass on the script, not really to mess around with any of the dialogue or, or, or the story, it was just putting tracks in, really, for like tone. And then I'd kind of, you know, I, I did know that I wanted to have some kind of score that would have themes of Morris and like, I suppose, the industrial world that he was, he was in and, um, and have that play into it somehow. Although I started with a very strange idea for this. So when I first met Isabel, because I loved Isabel's work, and strangely that she has this track called Illuminations on her Spotify that I was actually, I'd been writing my next film too, because I just loved it so much. So I was very keen to work with her. I think, I don't even know if she knows that. You know, I love her work, so I was excited to work with her. And when I first sat down um, with her, we, I had, I had this idea that Morris was essentially Superman. I, I spoke to you about this the other day, but when I first had the script, I was worried about directing someone else's work, and I was like, how do I find my way into it? And one of the scenes in the script, uh, Morris is described as taking off his work overalls like Superman and revealing his golf outfit. And I was like, okay, great, that's a that's a way in for me. So then, you know, the the color palette of the movie is Superman and we created like his vest that's like diamonds and like, you know, the Superman color. And there's loads of Easter eggs in there. So then I, when I sat down with uh, Isabel, I was like, okay, so I'm, I really would like to use the theremin like throughout the movie because mm -hmm. the theremin sounds like an alien essentially talking like, like Clark Kent. And I think it was used a lot in like, I think maybe the fifties or the sixties for horror movies mainly that were about like sea monsters or what have you. And Shape of Water used it a little bit, but I hadn't seen it much. Um, and then we tried it, and it was it was crazy. It was way too strange. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that that got that got abandoned pretty quickly. And then yeah, we I suppose we we we'd had the needle drops, like you said, the the big big tracks. And I was worried about that a little bit because it can feel like you're covering covering up, you know, like wallpapering over like mistakes in some places. But mm -hmm. I think our main reference for for that was like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where a lot of it's diegetic and it just feels like it's in the world. It could just be coming from the radio rather than the whole movie feeling like a trailer. Um, well, particularly because the twins are like disco dancers and stuff like that as well. You have that kind of almost backdrop and almost idea that they would constantly have music around. Do you know what I mean as well? Yeah, exactly. So that that really, really helped. But the, I think the tone of the music changed throughout the process of the editing, to be honest. 
I sh- shot the movie to music. So a lot of the times when there was no dialogue in scenes, we would play music. And I mainly played Amy Mann, uh, the Magnolia soundtrack, just because, uh... I mean, I love that soundtrack so much. And it just helps with like pushing the camera. Like when, when the, you know, the, the camera crew hear that music and it starts kicking off, it's really nice to, you know, feel, feel that energy. Um, so when I've got the... goosebumps. Yeah, I love him. And that, that soundtrack's so cool. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. Two can be as bad as one. It's the loneliest number since the number one. experience you'll ever know yes it's the saddest experience you'll ever know because one is the loneliest number that you'll ever do one is the loneliest number that you'll ever know and so when I did my first pass of the, the the film. I did the director's cut. I kind of the temp and temp is very dangerous always. The temp I put on was John Bryan mainly, and I think everyone was just very depressed after watching it. It felt too like it wasn't a comedy at all. So that that was binned. That was binned pretty quickly. And I think then I can't remember what temp we had on after that. I think it was maybe up. I think we had up <gasps> at the beginning of the. Oh, movie. Michael Giacchino, amazing. Yeah, which is the opposite of John Bryan, which is just like, you know, super positive and really, you know, it's very inviting and accessible. So when we did the, yeah, the opening of the movie, we we basically slapped slap some, yeah, up on the beginning of it. interesting because at the beginning that, that beginning scene of up kills me every time like it's Amazing. the most heartbreaking five minutes of animation I think I've or just film but the music kind of is like a comfort blanket in a way and that it's kind of like it's all right you know yeah yeah and that's so interesting that you say that because as soon as you hear Isabel's score you feel comfortable you feel safe I think that's right. I think you kind of it's kind of holding your hand through it, which you kind of I think you you, you know you definitely need.
and Tem is Isabel. You know, is just so fantastic because showing any any composer with temp on is always very dangerous. But because you know, you just you just worried that you're going to offend anybody. But she's obviously just a wonderful person, and and hit it, and then. You know, we had conversations about. I didn't really want it to be bang on what we had in there. I, I yeah. wanted her to do her own thing, and she completely has. But it, I think it was about just. I, I like older music, I suppose, in movies and romantic music, and um, that's what the cinema feels like to me. So it was just about that, and I, you know, she's very good at doing that. It does have that old school Hollywood feel to it at times as well, which is really gorgeous and lush. And yeah, that's what I hadn't thought about that sort of side of it. But yeah, that's that's amazing. Well, I think also it's just nice to have that kind of music with the backdrop that we have. You know, it's yeah. I'm not. I keep calling it like a birth lottery movie. That's the genre I'm putting it under, where it's like somebody, you know, the, the hand you're dealt and you having to go against that or beat the machine. I mean, it's a story of class, certainly, and there's there's a version of this movie that has no music at all. That's very, very real. I think you know the Loach the Loach approach, which is fantastic. You know, um, but I, he's just such a dreamer that it felt mm. I don't know when we do it, doing him justice by by doing that. So we wanted it to feel. I mean, the, the, you know, at the beginning of the movie, the title says Morris Flickcroft is the Phantom of the Open, and that feels like he's <laughs> the star of his own movie. So that felt yeah. nice to have that kind of that soaring music and the. And you know, it's a, we, we're you know we're an indie film. Or you know, we didn't have all the money in the world, and what Isabel was able to achieve with that is just incredible. That's so true because you have that kind of um, sort of sur- there's a few kind of you know surrealist moments in it as well. They kind of so sort of emphasise that kind of dreamer moment, you know, when he's with the giant golf tee and stuff. And it's just it's it, 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 I guess that's a gr- that's a really good thing that the music does as well. Is the music take helps you on that journey, doesn't it? So that it's sort of that so that you feel you feel like you're on it with him almost in a way. 
Yeah, exactly. And uh, is when we when um when we you know we're discussing the the score, Isabel had a great idea because I, I I think I'd strange I'd strange ideas of like hearing change in pockets and maybe that being in the in the score somehow. But that was probably more within the same in the same realm of the theremin. But Isabel had a great idea of hearing in like a male choir. So essentially like the shipyard was singing with him um, as he was like going out there and doing it. And it's just so beautiful and it works really well. You know, when you hear that, the choir throughout, I think it's just beautiful. One thing that you did talk about last week that I loved when you said as well uh, was the Coronation Street theme tune. Yeah, I, yeah. Uh, every time I say it, uh, people laugh, <laughs> which is like amazing because like it's incredible. It's so so good. Yeah, um, I went and listened to it straight after, like literally like, with five different versions of it that were on, you know, yeah. various incarnations of it sort of thing. And it's going, God, I had really taken this piece of music for granted for the entire time that my mum watched this when I was growing up. <laughs> well, so would I, yeah. Like, I just didn't realise it was there. And I'm not sure what it is now. I, I think the version I heard, or I was I was driving to prep and it was on the radio um, and they played, I think, the original the original theme. And, yeah, I mean, it feels absolutely epic. Uh, and I, I, th- I said to you the other day, it reminds me of Taxi Driver. You know, it really, really yeah. reminds me of Taxi Driver. I mean, I'm, it's not throughout the score, but there's a few tracks that, for me, sound like Coronation Street, and that's one step closer to me directing Coronation Street, so that'd be great. <laughs> well, it's like, when you think about it, it was the 60s, you know, in ter- terms of, like, when it first started, so that score was written. There were less, I guess, kind of, there was, there was obviously less TV channels, but they were, so they kind of, the, the shows kind of almost got, had that ability where I bet it was, like, the whole BBC concert orchestra or the equivalent for ITV sort of thing at the time. Do you know what I mean? I was just yeah. looking up who um, who composed it. Um, Eric Spear composed it. And, you know, he's done loads of amazing stuff as well. So I'm going to go and head down a wee rabbit hole with him in a while. That's for sure. Oh, me too. Absolutely. Um, Eric Spear. Thanks for the stare. There we go.
but it's it's that thing of kind of some when you think about it that piece of music's now 60 odd years old yeah but most, that, that, that's weird i feel like that's like most of my references are probably that. Like even <laughs> like even the billy light the billy light i think it's billy liar the billy liar soundtrack is actually fantastic as well that feels in the same lane and it Again, with Billy, like he's going throughout the movie and he's constantly having these fantasies that he's about to break out and be bigger than what, you know, his town expect him to do. And he's supported by this orchestra, like, you know, applauding him. And yeah, I love that. I love Billy Lyre mm. so much. I love that when that came out, I think it didn't have great reviews because it, people saw the ending as kind of nihilistic or that he didn't leave with, you know, with the woman and get on the train. At the end, he stayed in his hometown. But I love that so much about that movie because he's content with staying there. All too often, sometimes it's about like, I suppose actually the opposite of this film. Our film is not that. Our film is that Morris actually goes out and, like I said to you the other day, he's the Kanye West of golf. He believes that he can do whatever he wants to do. <laughs> that's my. You have to make sure that that's on a poster or something. The do you know Kanye what I mean? West it's got to be. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's the best ever. Now I just want to go and watch Billy Liar, Tom Courtney. Oh. God, just the best. Oh my yeah, God. That and so the loneliness, good. loneliness of a long distance runner as well are just absolutely, those, those Royal Court plays that were turned into features are just mm. absolutely amazing. We, lo- we loved Billy Liar during this, and we actually, we've got a clip of Billy Liar in the film just before he goes into the TV because, yeah, we love him so much. I like that kind of that flicking through of the, the channels and stuff. It's so good. It's kind of your, it's like a great way of being transported back to that, you know, that kind of era as well. We have, we have, you know, we have that clip of Thatcher in it as well, and we were kind of, we were, we were toying whether to do that because I feel like so many movies that are set around then, it's always about her, and you know, kind of what was going on, and, and that's fair enough, absolutely, it should be. But when we saw Mark's reaction, where like we, he turns the TV and then he kind of shakes his head a little bit, I just, yeah, I couldn't stop laughing. So I was like, that has yeah. to be, yeah, 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 totally. So you had it on. Did you have it on then in that scene when you were doing it so that he could genuinely react to stuff? No, we actually didn't. But when we were going through like the, his 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 takes. Yeah. And yeah, sorry. I, I, yeah, I don't I don't know if he knew what was on the TV, but for some reason and um, shook his head like he disagreed with what was on it. So <laughs> yeah, great. We thought get Thatcher in there. That'd be good. <laughs> for a little independent film, the buds, my ears, I don't know whether they're too big or too small, but my... My earbuds just always keep falling out. Um, for for as you said already, a little independent film. How did you get ABBA? Good question. <laughs> really good question. Um, Mark had to donate all his fee just to get it. No, he didn't. Um, well, actually, that goes to the producers and, and Phil Canning, the music supervisor. I think they talked to them, and I think it all depends normally on the budget of the film. If our yeah. budget was fifty million, I'm sure ABBA would have asked for a lot more money, but. I think they're pretty sound when it comes to asking for music. Like, they were tougher tracks to get. Like, we tried to get an Elton John track, and that was a no-go. But with ABBA, it was, yeah, absolutely, absolutely fine.
it's interesting. I, I don't. It's the it's like the Nirvana thing as well. Like Nirvana's so hard to hard to get. Not that we wanted to play Nirvana, but I've tried to get mm-hmm. Nirvana in the past. But I think because the drummer and also Courtney Love ha- both have the rights to it, it's hard to sometimes yeah. get them to agree to actually put the put the music on. But the, I think that yeah, they were all all together, so I think it's fine. They 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 seem like they want it on there. We have a lot of tracks. Like I don't know how they cleared them all, to be honest. <laughs> really how don't. do you? How do you? I mean, I guess it's it's a little bit of kind of um. It's a little bit of kind of, I guess, sort of chess with it in a way, isn't it? In terms of you, I guess you have your kind of wish list of what you want to put in and then it's a case of trying to get them and then, you know, kind of working out. But I think that like on that escape in the golf course scene, Ride Like the Wind, is just a genius. I mean, I was like belly laughing. It's so funny. Credit goes to Tom Miller, the producer, for that. He said that through. We we um, it's da- it's super dangerous because what happens is you you, hmm. you have like your, your your list of tracks that you want, and then I mean John Amos, the fantastic editor, and we were always like, okay, we can't edit to these tracks. We have to just edit the movie, and then let's see what happens. But you get you fall in love with tracks over certain pieces, and then you can't get the tracks. Like the final track we wanted for the end was Ken's. I think it's Ken Scott. You've got what I need, mm-hmm. which is a really lovely track. Um, but for some reason, we we couldn't get it. And that was really late in the day. Um, and we were super anxious that, like, okay, are we going to have to recut the end sequence to, like, make it fit? But the track we got, fortunately, you know, just slotted straight in. And that's when it, you know, that's when somebody's looking down on you. I've got some I want to speak about specifically as well, which is, um, uh, like, when he, when he, when, when golf comes to him, more <laughs> than a number in my little red book, it's like, yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I mean, it's so random that track. That, that's... So good, though. Yeah, yeah, that's the place where we had an Elton John song over it. And... In your face, Elton John. Yeah, thank, thank you, Elton, <laughs> for making us choose the other song. Um, because as soon as that was put on, I think it just makes you want to get up and dance. And totally. Yeah, and that that's you know that's what he feels in the moment. He feels like I've discovered you know what I'm supposed to do. Sometimes I think people can get caught up in the lyrics having to, you know, having to fit into the narrative, like the song, you know, the song lyrics. And I don't think that's always the case, really. I think playing mm. it against is probably better sometimes. Yeah, totally. Like, I think, um, like, it's been a lifetime since I've heard Leo say, or you make me feel like dancing as well. 
I was like, oh, yes. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and actually, actually as well, jo- uh, Johnny Must, the, the editor, he, he's he got such a library of music. Um, so we were able to pull a lot of that and, 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 you know, and mess around. And yeah, I owe a lot to him for that. and the, the the twins and their dancing competitions as well it's such a great kind of little narrative that's running along you know behind morris's story sort of thing because I, I i remember when i was a kid and being part of the curly school of dancing and oh, wow. um, yeah and um that whole world and the kind of drive i mean i was not not one of those kind of driven kids like that but right. i had friends who like went to every competition and like they would never stand still. They would just be constant <laughs> perpetual motion. And I love that that's like exactly in the film with the boys sort of thing. They're just, you know, even people come around the house and they've got everybody doing a kind of group dance routine and stuff. It's just just ready to dance, just completely yeah. ready to dance. Well, I believe that's what they were like, you know, Morris's son. So I think they're, they're the energy of the movie, really. They keep it going. And we, we had a bit more dancing in the movie. Which is the movie was so long at one point that we had to take some of it out. Um, but I do feel like we could have made, potentially had more in there as well because I think people just love seeing them dance and and their spirit. Because you know Morris has passed it on. He's like, go and do it. it doesn't matter if you lose at all. Like at least you at least you gave it a go. And they were pretty good. They were actually you know they were they were half decent at dancing, which is awesome. They all yeah. we also played loads of dancing tracks. I can't remember which ones, but we played loads of dancing tracks on the day of them dancing because there's nothing more awkward if we weren't to play dance music <laughs> yeah. like, dance dance <laughs> yeah like on the green as well when they do that little the little kind of re- dance reaction on the green of their you know their way of showing how happy they are by doing the caterpillar i believe that's what they call the caterpillar kind of. yes <laughs> yeah. yeah i mean yeah they don't even come on and like say anything they just come to just come straight onto the green and dance dance away um, maybe you could have like the dance edit of the film when it comes, you know, instead of the director's cut, it could be the, 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 dance, the dance cut. <laughs> well, that should be the, yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure there'll never be a sequel, but if there, if there was, um, it would be following them and like all the dancing they did. Cause there's just so many stories there. I bet. I, well, it was interesting when you, you were all talking the other night at the Q&A about having a night out with, with the son and how that kind of turned into quite a long long evening and massive yeah. hangover <laughs> well, well that that was we so me nick and tom went with them to ulverston and we showed it to the community and like you know and also his family and that was a really special night but i think simon uh. has the simon has the real stories because he he went with them <laughs> years and years ago and i don't think you quite remember what happened that night um listen we're running out of time but um I just think you've made such a brilliant film and it's 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 many things but i think right now with everything that's going on in the world it is a beautiful escape for people and a beautiful entertaining funny emotional escape for people so i really hope that everybody goes along to see it but um what's next <laughs> thank you so much for the way i really appreciate it thank you very oh, much my pleasure um, 
next is uh, I'm going to hopefully make a movie at the end uh, in this this summer. It's called Honey, and it's a relationship drama, and it's certainly a lot darker than um, what this is. Okay, but it's based um, on it's based on Arthur Schnitzler novella, um, who's the the guy that they adapted Eyes Wide Shut for. So it's kind of like a I suppose a modern day Eyes Wide Shut in some way. Ooh, going to the bookshop to get that on the school run this afternoon. Lovely stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, listen, it's always a treat to get to chat to you, Craig. And again, huge congratulations on the film. And um, I'll see you for the next one, my friend. Yes, thank you so much. Honestly, thanks Aww. for having me on. Good to see you. Pleasure. Take care, love. Bye. Bye thanks so much. See ya. From the score to Phantom of the Open, then, that's ladies and gentlemen, Morris Flitcroft, rounding off this latest episode of Soundtracking with Craig Roberts. My huge thanks to Craig for taking the time to talk to us. The Phantom of the Open is on general release now and really does offer some very brilliant light relief from everything that's going on around us now. So if you feel comfortable going to the cinema, I can't recommend this film enough. It's just brilliant. Head to edithbowman.com to hear my previous conversations with Craig and Isabel and do subscribe whilst you're there if you fancy. As I said at the start of the show, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtrack UK and have a little look at our YouTube channel too for videos aplenty. And also just back to social media and getting in touch if you are or you know of uh, any Ukrainian creatives uh, in the world of film and TV, directors, composers, then please do uh, pass on our details to them and tell them to get in touch with us uh, because we would love to tell their stories. Next up, it's episode 300 of Soundtracking. How are we going to celebrate? Well, you just have to tune in to find out. I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then. <laughs>